0: From WBOI, Fort Wayne. From WBOI studios in Fort Wayne, this is the I Am Immigrant, and I am Ahmed Abdelmajid. I am a Palestinian immigrant who has been donning the title of immigrant for the past 24 years of my life. I am interested in conversations around the immigrant experience, conversation that we seem to be not having or we seem to be not knowing how to have. For this podcast series, I'm hoping that we have conversations with different immigrants about all that it entails to be an immigrant. Okay, so welcome everybody to a new episode of The Iron Immigrant. I am your host Ahmed Abdul Majid and as always I'm joined by the wonderful Katie Anderson.
1: <laughs> Thanks so much Ahmed and I am looking forward to another great conversation.
0: Yes, today's conversation as all the conversations we've had so far should be a very interesting uh, interesting one and um I say that because I know a little bit about the person that we're interviewing today. She's a friend of mine, a colleague uh, from my years in academia and pharmacy world. And uh, she's joining us today from her home in the Chicago area.
1: Yeah. And uh, she's from Bosnia, correct?
0: That is correct,
1: And uh, yeah, I'm really interested to hear her story because I know right here in Fort Wayne, we have a very significant Bosnian population. And uh, it's something I don't know a ton about right now.
0: Yeah, actually, Fort Wayne, from what I know, uh, similar to how the recent migration of the Burmese population, or Burmese, and we have had the largest Burmese population per capita in the United States. Prior to that, in the 90s, Fort Wayne opened its doors to a lot of uh, Bosnians who were fleeing the war conflict that was going on at that time um and so i'm hoping that we'll learn a lot about that and we'll learn a lot more about the bosnian culture and bosnian food one of my favorite (laughs) topics as our friend who is on a zoom call today because she's in chicago my friend bedrea hello and welcome
2: hi thank you very much it's a pleasure to be here with you today
0: Can you give us a little bit about where you're from and how you made it to the United States?
2: So I always laugh when people ask me that question, um, because I am from Bosnia. I was born in Bosnia and I lived there until I was about nine years old. And at that time, the conflict in Bosnia was starting. Um, My father had lived in Croatia for over 20 years, meaning he worked there and came home on the weekends. And so as the conflict was beginning, my father kept asking us to come to Croatia and join him there, which we eventually did. So from age of nine to about 17, I lived in Croatia, after which I moved to the United States. And then I married the Montenegrin guy.
3: <laughs> okay.
2: So, <laughs> so I spend my summers in Montenegro. So it's kind of, you know, where are you from? It's kind of a, a complicated answer from me because I feel like I'm from all of those places in some way or another right bosnia is very near and dear to my heart it's obviously the place where i truly have a home croatia is where i grew up it's where i spent my formative years so it's certainly all of my best friends are in croatia everything that i can clearly recall about my childhood is from croatia but then i came to america and i made a life here with you know finishing school here and becoming a professional and and moving into a a career that I'm in today. And then again, we spent most of our time in in the summer in Montenegro, which is where my husband is from. And of course, that culture has an influence on me as well.
0: So you've been an immigrant a couple of times already. (laughs) But you you started the conversation saying that you left Bosnia with your family at the age of nine because of uh, the conflict. Can you give us a little bit of background on that conflict what it was about and why did your father feel compelled to have you move to croatia to join him there
2: sure so i prefer to to answer that question from a personal standpoint as opposed to you know the political or or the world-known uh way of what happened but essentially what was happening with us is we lived in a small village in bosnia so it was my brother my mother and i and we lived in almost a a town home, because it was a huge house that was, uh, we lived on one side and my uncle lived on the other side of it. And my grandparents lived a few feet away from us, you know, in a house in the same uh, yard, essentially. And until I was about nine, it was a great life. You know, no one knew the difference between a Catholic, uh, an Orthodox or a Muslim person. People didn't look at those differences. Yugoslavia used to be a communist country, so religion was not something that was sort of openly exercised within Yugoslavia. And if you openly exercised your religion, you weren't necessarily considered to be a a true member of the communist party. Mm. And so opportunities for advancement, both in employment and in social life, were not necessarily always there if you weren't a true part of that communist party. But until I was about nine years old, everything was going very smoothly. My father worked in Croatia for many years. He was a forklift operator there, and you know he would come home on the weekends. My and mother, how far is
0: Croatia from Bosnia?
2: So in normal conditions, the drive from Zagreb, the capital of Croatia, where my father worked, um, to Teslic is about four hours. Okay. Um, so he would come home typically on the weekends and then go back to work. Uh, my mom worked the land that my father and my grandparents owned uh, took care of us and was sort of a a homemaker at the time in 1991 um, tito had died back in 1980 i believe and yugoslavia was starting to sort of fall apart at the seam and in 1991 um, croatia came under attack by yugoslav national army which was at that point largely controlled um, by Serbia in a way. And a couple of parts of Croatia, the easternmost parts, uh, were under heavy attacks, and there was a lot of um, military activity in those areas. So my father became concerned as that military activity started to spread more in, inward in Croatia. Of course, uh, things were also starting to heat up in Bosnia, but we really weren't truly aware of what was going on because all of the media at the time was still controlled by the government. Mm. And you really only heard the things that they wanted you to hear on the media. So we really weren't aware of the things that were going on, but reading back now, I see that there were shootings going on early on in April of uh, 1992 even in um, 1991, at the end of 1991, I remember spending New Year's of 1991, uh, the first part of it, sitting around talking to my aunt and her kids and my mother. My uncle had come from Croatia and they were concerned that our village might be attacked that night. So they went Hmm. on guard duty with homemade weapons. And essentially they were just circling the village and, and looking for any military activity. And I remember at one point in the middle of the night, he ran into the house and essentially told us, they're coming, they're coming tonight, so go hide in a closet. And And who's who's
0: they? Sorry, who's they?
2: Um, The Serbs. Okay. So Yugoslav National Army, which at the time was controlled by Serbs. Gotcha. Um, I remember we hid in the closet for the rest of the night and spent Mm -hmm. the rest of that night in a closet because we were worried that they would come. And then my uncle came at some point after midnight to tell us, you know, it it was a false alarm, everything was fine, and and we would be okay. So in April of 1992, my brother was in fifth grade and he was going to a school that was about 20 minutes away from our house. Um, So not within our village, but in the next village over. And they had an old school building and a new school building. And at one point the army moved into the old school building. And one day, my brother was out on recess, and one of the soldiers slapped him during Mm. recess. And my mother, of course, as any mother would, was very upset about that. And so she went into the school and essentially, at some point, told them that unless the army moves out of the school, she won't be sending my brother back to school. And she was told that if she doesn't send him to school, she would be jailed. Oh, wow. So it was at that point that, you know, she finally, she talked to my father again, she talked to her brother and they both said, you know, it's time for you to leave. You have a place to go, your husband's in Croatia. You should take the children and you should leave. So on April 20th, we left our house. We went, slept over at my grandmother's house, which was closer to the city. And on the 21st, got on a bus to Croatia. Uh, We made it as far as Croatian border which is a natural border. It's a river Sava. We were in the city of Butchko when we were told to disembark from the bus. Um, And we were told the bus wasn't able to cross the bridge on Sava because it was closed off by by the military. Hmm. So we disembarked, Um, it was the three of us. And there was an older lady from our village that was traveling on the same bus by happenstance. And my mom started looking for a place to sleep. And she went to a couple of places and she couldn't find any place that would take us in for a night, even though she was willing to pay and she had offered to pay. And so we were standing on the corner of the street with no place to go. And my mom says, well, you know, I'm going to go back to the bus station. I'm going to ask if I can just buy a ticket so we can go back home. And so she went, she asked, and she was told that the buses stopped running. The roads are closed. So, apparently, as we were leaving, the roads were closing behind us. Wow. And as we were standing there, a gentleman approached us carrying two cans of peas in his hands.
3: Hmm.
2: And he goes to my mom, well, you know, I, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm just wondering, do you maybe need a place to sleep tonight? And my mom was like, well, actually, to be honest with you, I do, but I just want to point out I have two children and my mother with me because she wasn't going to leave that old lady. Hmm. And he said, well, that's not a problem. Let me just go buy some bread and I'll come back and I'll get you. And so he walks across the street. Um, and as he's walking across the street, the old lady's elbowing my mom. And she's like, Zahra, what are you doing? We don't know who he is. He could kill us tonight. Yeah. And I remember my mom saying, well, let him kill us. What am I going to do? I'm not going to have my kids sleep on the street tonight.
0: Oh, my goodness.
2: If he's going to kill us, let him kill us. And in the meantime, the gentleman came back. He said, You know what, you look really tired. Let me just take you home and I'll come back for the bread later. They were actually a Serbian family. Mm. And so they took us in for the night, they gave us a place to stay um, for the night, they fed us. Um, You know, they were so nice. I even as a child, I remember how nice they were to us and how kind they were to us. The next day, they wouldn't let us leave because the only way to get to Croatia was to take a bus to a city two hours away and then get on a boat. But when you think about a boat, it wasn't like a large boat that would carry a hundred people at once. It was a boat that could carry four or five people okay. at the most. And there were thousands of refugees trying to leave Bosnia. So to wait in a line for those boats, they were concerned about my mom waiting with an older person plus two children. And they, were, they kept telling us, well, wait, you, know, you can go when um, the ferry boat starts going across the river, then you'll be okay to go. And we went for a walk. My mom took me and my brother for a walk. And we came to the bridge and there was a soldier at the bridge. And so my mom walked up to the soldier and she says, well, do you think we could just walk across the bridge? Could I take my kids and walk across the bridge? And he looked at her and said, well, I'll let you do that. But the Croats from the other side will kill you. Hmm. So that bridge was blown up i believe a week or two after that shortly after that that bridge was completely blown up and it it was out of commission as we came back into the apartment of these wonderful people that were hosting us for the evening they were announcing that the ferry boats had started running so we left we got on a bus and we traveled the two hours to a city on i believe a little bit west of the city that we were in. Maps and geography are not my best <laughs> subject, um, but we traveled there. And, and during that trip, we were pulled over three times or stopped three times. There were barricades on the road. There were soldiers coming on the bus. Uh, every time we were stopped that had guns, they had bullets, rows of bullets all over them, hmm. uh, bombs in their belts. And they would come in and ask, well, where are you going? What are you scared of? No one's going to hurt you. You should go back home. So we were stopped three times. Um, Each time the driver would remind us, you know, don't speak to anyone, don't look at them. If they ask you a question, answer it. If they ask you for documents, give it to them. But other than that, no one should be talking. And then we finally made it to Orashi. We were able to get on a boat and and catch a bus and meet my father in Zagreb um, on the 22nd of April.
0: Wow and but you said your father was saying that the army was moving into croatia as well right so they're moving into croatia and bosnia so you, you were escaping army coming into bosnia to croatia where there's still an army coming in as well is that correct
2: so croatia is kind of shaped like a boomerang okay if you think of the country the way it's shaped almost like a boomerang. And the two parts that were mostly affected by war were the ends of the boomerang. So the city of Vukovar and the city of Dubrovnik, which is a historical site, uh, were the ones that took most uh, the brunt of the military activity. The rest of the country, so the inner portion of the country for the most part was safe. Every okay. once in a while there would be sirens going off and you know planes flying over but other than that it was generally safe
0: okay so so you were headed to a safe place and like you mentioned you spent from nine till 17 years of age growing up in croatia wow i mean what a what a what a journey that's that's tough how how was the transition to croatia itself as a i mean refugee from war and having home being so close and yet not being able to go to it. Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
2: It was very interesting because as the situation changed, our position sort of changed. So when we came in, we came in as refugees. We had refugee documents. My father had a resident card, essentially, a permanent resident card. Um, But the rest of us were living on refugee permits. My father, even though he had a permanent resident card, was not eligible for citizenship at the time during the time that we were there, you know, initially, it was okay, everyone sort of realized that the refugees were coming. There were, of course, centers that were set up to assist with refugees, we were lucky enough that my father had an apartment that we could stay at initially, at least that he shared with his brothers. And then after that, we found an apartment of our own. Uh, But the rest of the refugees were generally coming into uh, refugee centers, either run by Croatian government or Catholic Charities, Um, Caritas is a big one over there. Mm. Merhamed, which is a Turkish charity organization, uh, was also one that ran a lot of these camps. But then at one point during the war, there was actually a conflict between Bosniaks, uh, so Bosnian Muslims, and Croats, um, so Bosnian Catholics. And that complicated things additionally. At that point in time, I remember we had actually... We had an apartment that we were renting and we were kicked out of that apartment over something minor. It was kind of random, but it was even the landlord, the landlady had asked my father to put back a manhole cover. And my my dad said something like, you know, it's Eden. I'm going to go visit my brother. I'm happy to do it for you when I get home. And and she kind of lost it. And we, we ended up losing our lease at that time because of that. Eid is um, the
0: Muslim religious holiday following the end of Ramadan or the pilgrimage season, so that kind of stoked the that tension because you guys are a Muslim family and she wasn't. Or
2: I I think for her it was more she had some mental health issues and it was just kind okay. of unrelated. But I remember this this was right around the time that the conflict between. Uh, the Bosnian accent the Croats was starting and my mom called a landlord after a landlord based on ads from the newspaper and nearly every single person she called asked what religion are you?
3: Oh wow. Okay.
2: So a lot of people would either hang up on her as soon as she said we were Muslim or as soon as she said we were Bosnian or as soon as they heard her accent because Bosnian accent is slightly different from that of uh, Croat people A lot of them would tell her flat out, I don't want Muslims living in my house. Um, And then she called the gentleman who actually ended up renting us the apartment. He has since passed away, God bless his soul, but he gave her the information about the apartment. And before she hung up, my mom wanted to make sure she wouldn't be on the train for, you know, an hour to get to the apartment to take a look at it. She made sure to tell him, well, you know, I just want to tell you before we hang up that we're Muslim. And he said, ma'am, are you going to pay me for the apartment? (laughs) My mom said, of course, we're going to pay you for the apartment. What do you, (laughs) you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, then I really don't care whether you're Muslim, whether you're, you know, if you're alien, I could care less. Um, And so we ended up actually living in the apartment that he rented out to us until we moved to the United States. And he was he was really, truly a good soul. He was an amazing person.
0: That's that's. Amazing to find in the middle of all of that. I mean, first the Serbian family that hosted you guys at the border while the conflict was going on with you know an army that's predominantly Serbian, and then in Croatia with the conflict and to have a Croatian family that's that's amazing. Um, that there's always there's always good in people and there's always good people in somewhere amidst all that chaos. Okay, so you lived in Croatia a good eight or nine years. You grew up there. And then you said you came to the U S at the age of 17. Yes. How did you guys find your way or make your way to the United States?
2: It was essentially through family reunion, whatever they call the the program. But we came in through an organization called world relief. And it was an organization that was essentially formed to help refugees. Uh, move from Bosnia to the United States. So we went through the full immigration process essentially of applying. Uh, we had to have a sponsor, and my aunt had actually lived here okay. uh, before we decided to come here. I believe she came in 1998. She had lived with us in Croatia for a little while uh, after the war started, and then went to Germany to be reunited with her husband, who had stayed in Bosnia uh, for two years during the war and then they moved to florida and finally made their way to chicago so they were the ones who sponsored us in terms of coming here as family members who were also coming in as refugees under the refugee status
0: i see and so you came reunited with your aunt essentially and in chicago is that the first place you guys landed in
2: yep um (laughs) little bosnia as we usually refer to it (laughs) Um, (laughs) There used to be a stretch of um, Kenmore between Foster and Glen Lake, essentially, or Foster and Devon, um, and a lot of Bosnians used to live on that street, um, nice. so we always teased that it's, you know, the little Bosnia over there.
0: <laughs> little Bosnia, and interruptions, I'm assuming, for your academic year when, you know, uh, when you were nine years old, in that transition period, and then were you... It doesn't, it doesn't seem like you missed any years of school is what I'm wondering. So, uh, And then also you speak English very well. So did you learn English there or was that here in the United States?
2: So, again, I was very lucky that we moved to a place where we had a home. So my father had an apartment ready for us. And I was able to restart school shortly after arriving in Croatia. Okay. So when I left Bosnia, I was in third grade and i was able to finish third grade in croatia and when i left croatia i was actually a junior in high school so when i moved to the united states you know, you go through one of these services i believe i went through ece um, that checks your credits and looks to see how many credit hours you've completed and what courses you've completed and which ones you need to complete and essentially they give you a a verified diploma that is translated into english and I was lucky enough that my professors in Croatia were all willing to work with me, knowing that I was moving to the United States, even though there was still a month left um, in the school year. They allowed me to take my exams early, and they allowed one of my best friends, who is also Croatian, to go pick up my diplomas for me and actually ship them to me so that I would be able to do that here. Very nice. Um, so they were very accommodating, and you know when I when I spoke earlier about my mom looking for an apartment, there were a lot of people who said no, but then there were a lot of amazing people that we met in Croatia that supported us along the way too. Um, but anyhow, I'm I'm getting off topic. I have a tendency <laughs> to do that. Um, but when I moved here, I went through the process of having my diploma translated. When I enrolled in high school, they actually enrolled me back into the junior year. And I was very persistent in going back to my counselor and bringing my diplomas back in every other day until she finally agreed to allow me to test to see if I could be placed into a senior class. So I remember when I first started at Amundsen, the high school that I went to, I was placed into an English as a second language course. Mm. And after I took the placement exam, I was actually placed into an honors English course. (laughs) Yes. And so my knowledge of English, when I moved to Croatia, Croatia um, actually taught English as a second language to students beginning in third grade. So I had English from third grade on, and then when you start high school, you're expected to select an additional foreign language to study, and my options were Spanish or German, Mm -hmm. and not expecting that I would move to the United States, I chose German. (laughs) (laughs) I can speak some conversational German, nothing great, but I can speak conversational ger- German somewhat.
0: So, But now you're wishing you learned Spanish instead of German, right? I sure am,
2: <laughs> especially working in an area that serves a lot of uh, patients who speak Spanish as their primary language. So. Would
0: have come in handy for sure. <laughs> when... Moving to the United States, how was that transition? I mean, you you said Croatia was similar in a lot of ways to Bosnia. I guess the language is also similar. I'm assuming maybe some of the cultural things are similar, but the United States is a foreign in a lot of ways to you. So how was that transition period, especially at a critical age of 17, 18?
2: Honestly, so (coughs) moving from Bosnia to Croatia, for me, it really wasn't I guess that big of a deal one because of the circumstances we were moving under, right?
3: Yeah. We
2: had, essentially it wasn't safe. So we had to move. It wasn't necessarily a choice. And on top of that, most of our family was able to rejoin us in Croatia relatively soon. Um, when we moved to the United States, I felt like I was being ripped apart from everything I ever knew. Mm-hmm. So, We left our family. I left my friends. It was, it was tough and that's not my favorite part of <laughs> that, no um it's
0: it, it, it's it's not easy no i know it's it's hard and especially moving so far away you know not too long ago it wasn't like easily accessible that you can facetime or zoom or call with yep. your friends and family
2: so back in 2000 it was either send a letter mm-hmm. or you know i i believe it was 50 cents per minute at the time when we moved here to call to Croatia or Bosnia, so you know a single phone conversation. I, I remember once I forgot to dial the prefixes that uh-huh. we needed to dial to to uh, have the lower rate applied through the phone company, and one conversation ended up costing over a hundred dollars. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so, I don't miss but, those days. <laughs> but it was it was very difficult, certainly, and um, you know trying to make friends as a child is a lot easier. I feel like than mm-hmm. it is as a young adult especially when everyone is sort of trying to figure out how to, what to do with their life and how to do what they want to do with their life. Um, so certainly the transition to the United States was definitely more difficult, especially with parents who didn't speak English, brother who spoke very little English. So I was sort of the family translator also, anything that happened. So, you know, when that hundred dollar bill from the Phone company came <laughs> for the phone call I made, even though I was seventeen. It was my job to call them and and see if there is any way that they might be able to discount it or you know if we needed to change the insurance company or if we needed to change whatever it it was always my job to do all of that, so there was a lot more responsibility sort of to go along with moving here than there was when when I moved to Croatia as a nine year old.
0: That's a that's a lot to handle, and not not only that you're doing it for yourself. I mean, I moved to the U.S. when I was 18 and figuring things out on my own, but it was just for me. You had to figure that out for your family, for your entire family. That's uh, quite a feat. Can Go I ahead.
1: chime in? I'm, so you're you're a wonderful storyteller. I mean, just your entire journey here has been so harrowing and uh, interesting. So I'm wondering if you've had to tell this story to a lot of people over the years, or uh, if you look for opportunities to share your experiences?
2: Honestly, I don't tell this story unless I'm asked to tell it. Usually, the people that I have told it to are typically my friends from Bosnia that have told me their stories of leaving. And so it's sort of a compare and contrast situation, right? And then of course, my friends in Croatia, because I had a lot of friends there that we're born in Croatia and obviously did not go through, through that same journey. So I'll I'll tell it to people when I'm asked, but I don't necessarily tell it unless I'm asked, type of thing.
0: Is it because it's still too raw, too sensitive?
2: Honestly, sometimes I just don't feel like people care all that. Well, I guess, and that makes it seem like people are horrible and they don't care, <laughs> um, which isn't true. But um, I feel like. Well, why should someone care about something that happened in Bosnia, you know, 35 years ago? Mm. Why would anyone care? And maybe it's the wrong feeling for me to have, but it certainly is always there in the back of my mind. So if someone's interested and someone wants to hear the story, I'll certainly tell it. But other than that, we usually just talk about it amongst ourselves type of thing.
1: I see. I really appreciate you uh, sharing it with us. I know a lot of these details can't be easy to recall, but it, it, it means a lot.
0: So with the recent rhetoric that we've had over the past few years about immigrants and immigration and refugees and the negative image that we're painted in in many ways how has that you know impacted you if any if at all but you know as someone who has gone through all of this to come to the United States and like you said you're blessed in in, in a lot of ways and and have made a successful life for yourself here and to hear that emboldened in public spaces uh, and, and talked about in such a way can you reflect on that for us a little bit
2: well honestly my family we always find it very interesting when people say well these refugees they're just trying to get into america for x y and z uh, because we never would have left bosnia if we could have stayed there if if there wasn't a war, we never would have left. Uh, We had had opportunities to move to Croatia before the war starting. Again, because my father lived there, we could have moved at any time and lived with him there. And my mom never wanted to do it. Because we had a good life, we had a wonderful family, we had, you know, a house, we owned a lot of land. And then we, we went from that to essentially a one bedroom apartment in Croatia, and then eventually a two bedroom, but still, something much, much smaller where we, will, we were limited in everything we could do. So whenever I hear the, I call it the hateful rhetoric, which may not be the best word for it, but uh, whenever I hear negative things about refugees, my first thought is honestly, none of us ever wanted to leave. Mm. So the only reason people try to leave everything they have ever had is because they have to they don't have a better choice. And for someone to to say that, you know, you're coming here and you're stealing my job and, and you're doing this and you're doing that and you're doing the other, on some level, okay, I can understand that. On another level, I really can't because a lot of the jobs that are done by immigrants, especially the ones that people complain most about are the jobs that no one else wants to do. Um, <laughs> So I guess I I don't, oftentimes, I don't know what to say to that. Um, I have had, I have heard things that are Islamophobic. Um, actually, the first time you and I met, Ahmed,
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: I'm sure you recall the story, but the first time you and I met, I had someone from the academic community make a very Islamophobic comment to me, not knowing that I was Muslim because I don't, look Muslim in many ways, right? I'm not your typical Muslim. But we had gone out to dinner and this person told me, you know, well, all these Muslims and all these black people. And so it was more than just Muslims. But the part that obviously hurt me the most was the Muslim part, because that is what I identify as. And it it was very interesting to me to see or to hear something like that in the United States, because I had never heard it. And the 16 years that I had lived here, I had never heard it before that moment. Hmm. So, you know, when people say things like that, it it always worries me, especially when it's something that is done on a much larger scale. And when that sort of attitude is coming from those in power, it always concerns me because that's sort of how it started in Bosnia. You know, that's how we ended up in a war. It's because people in power were saying negative things about the other Um group and it ended up in a conflict where hundreds of thousands of people were tortured Um, many thousands died and it's not something that i would ever want to see happen in the united states
0: i mean it's it's a powerful reminder and and like you said you've seen it as a child uh, when abuse of power in a way because the war in bosnia was along religious line or sectarian lines that they Muslims were being attacked for being Muslims. And I don't know if that was from after the the fall of the Communist Party and people trying to identify themselves and they identified religiously. Is that how?
2: It was long repressed anger for things that happened many, many years ago. So back in, I believe, 15th century, Bosnia was occupied by the Ottoman Empire. Um, and so it was Croatia, Serbia, Montenegro, every country next ex Yugoslavia was essentially overrun by Ottoman Empire. And a lot of the rhetoric during the war was we're taking revenge on the Turks mm. by, you know, torturing Mo- Bosnian Muslims, by killing Bosnian Muslims, by raping Bosnian women. They were taking revenge on the Turks for things that were done in 15th century. So it... I think Bosnia was sort of a culmination of many, many years of hate that just found its outlet sort of in a in a very negative way there.
0: And you've seen kind of the beginning faces of that with the Islamophobic rhetoric that you've heard here. Is that how you well, felt about it?
2: There was a person that I know that, you know, supported the president that was...
0: Because you're seeing a lot of similarities from... I mean, what Trump has done is emboldened this those voices. So we don't necessarily have to talk about Trump himself, but it's just in the past few years how that Islamophobia, or even since September 11, how that Islamophobia has escalated. You're saying that you've seen that as reflection of, or as as kind of a, a full circle to where you came from.
2: Well, so every time I hear, you know, I see someone say something negative about a Muslim here. It sort of throws me back to the years when I was sitting there listening to news reports where they were saying, well, these Muslims are trying to kill all of us. These Mm. Muslims are trying to take over our government. These Muslims, you know, hate everyone around them. And I remember being a Muslim and my parents being a Muslim and my parents never hated anyone in their life. I know most of my neighbors, I know most of my Bosnian friends, never hated anyone in their life. And I know that till the last moment, nearly every single Bosnian person was naive enough to believe that our neighbors would never hurt us.
3: Mm.
2: So when I hear negative things being said, it is very reminiscent to me of of things that I heard back in the 90s that essentially led to that conflict. And so I found them very concerning. And I'm hoping that, you know, by by talking to people. And I do talk to people about my religion a lot. Um, mm-hmm. So if anyone asks me what religion I am, I'll typically you know, tell them what I am, but then also talk about the religion just in general terms, because Islam is a peaceful religion. And there is not a single thing within Islam that teaches you to, to hurt someone, that teaches you to um, kill someone, right? And so when, when people say to me, well, you hate everyone who's not Muslim, I don't hate anyone, you know, Mm -hmm. from, from the day I was born, I was taught that there are good people and bad people. I wasn't taught that there are Muslims, that there are Catholics, that there are Christians. And I mentioned earlier that there were people that helped us throughout our journey that were Christian Orthodox people that were Catholic that helped us. So the Serbs, the Croats that helped us on our way here, some of my best friends are Catholic Catholics from Croatia and they are just amazing people. So there are good people and bad people. There is no such thing as, you know, all Muslims are bad or all Catholics are bad or Orthodox Christians are bad. Um,
0: and and this highlights for us the importance of this podcast and these kinds of conversations and having the story being told. Because, again, a lot of people, it's it's easier for a lot of people to put a label on something and then just whatever that label carries and don't try and look at the person behind that label to understand their story. And we've we've seen the dangers of that. We've seen it in, in Bosnia. We've seen it in uh, in different places where, you know, the label that is carried as almost a shortcut to I don't I, I don't want to spend any energy learning about this person or about their life or where they come from or what they're about their ex, and that ex is something that I hate, and we direct that towards them. And so we appreciate you being on this episode with us and sharing that that difficult story for us. I know it's, it's not easy to relive all of that, but it's extremely important for our folks out there to hear about this and to learn more about uh, yet another immigrant that's a beautiful piece in the overall mosaic that is the United States. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, now you're, you, you're married, you have two beautiful children that are growing up in the United States. I'm wondering how much of your story and your history do you share with them? How much do they know about it? How much do you shield them from? I mean, I don't know if you do, but do they know your story or do you keep it until they're older? How do you approach that with your children?
2: So I do tell them about it. I, I feel it is important for them to know the history. Um, if we don't talk about history, it will repeat itself. And we've seen it, unfortunately, repeat itself multiple times so far. So my children know that mommy's from Bosnia, daddy's from Montenegro. And you know, they've asked, well, mommy, why did you leave Bosnia? And you know I explained to them that we had to leave because there were soldiers that came in and we had to leave, it wasn't safe for us to leave. Um, do they know all the gory details of everything that happened in mm-hmm. Bosnia in, between 1992 and 1995? They do not, certainly. Um, they're still way too young for that. They're 9 and 10. But at some point, I I do want them to know um, what happened and how it happened and why it happened. And there are actually quite a few documentaries and movies out there that sort of focus on the stories of, of people from Bosnia. One of the most recent ones being Kovad is Saida, which Mm -hmm. was nominated for an Oscar for um, the best foreign movie, I believe. And, you know, those are sort of the ways that I plan to introduce it to them, but maybe when they're a little bit older, because honestly, the things that happened in Bosnia are not something that a child of their age should have to worry about.
0: Yeah, but you're still kind of easing them into understanding where you come from and why is that important to you?
2: Well, in the raw sense of the word, it's important to me because I have family members that have suffered a lot in order to be able to call themselves Bosniaks. So one of my uncles was in a concentration camp for over two, well, actually two of my uncles were in a concentration camp for two years where every day that they were there, they were beaten. So they would bring them in for a few days, beat them, bring them back home and then repeat the process over and over and over again. Um, My father's brother at one point was beaten to the point where there wasn't a single white spot on his skin. Oh, my goodness. So nearly to death. And I have cousins that died. One of them was killed um, while he was in the army. So um, he was killed. Another one was killed in that concentration camp and died on... Um, my uncle's lap so it's important to me because i need to find a way to honor their memory Mm -hmm. and for me that's the way to do it
0: it's it's hard to i don't know i don't know what to say to be honest with you i mean i i uh, hope that you see this as a way of honoring their memory as well and honoring their story and it's something that hopefully will create better understanding for everyone out there what parts of the bosnian culture do you still hold on to and do you introduce in your day-to-day life as a family with the kids you know do you speak bosnian to them um are you just like me really upset every single day that your kids can't speak the language <laughs> very well and have a thicker accent in their father's language than anything else?
2: So it's a it's a constant battle, especially with my younger one, With my older one, it was actually easier. Uh. um, Because by the time you know, he was learning how to speak, uh, we had um, Bosnian TV brought into the house. So you know, you buy a Mm. cable box, and then you have a ton of Bosnian, Serbian, Montenegrin channels, Croatian and I really don't care which of them they watch, as long as it's something that's one of our languages. So it was funny because my son would, when he was younger, he would say a lot of words with a Croatian accent because <laughs> Tractor Tom and Croatian was one of his favorite cartoons. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it was certainly a lot easier with him. When my daughter was sort of at that same stage where she was learning everything, my son had already started preschool. And even though they're only a year apart, mm-hmm. um, He preferred to try and speak English. Um, So his Bosnian to this day is actually, well, Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, Montenegrin, whatever you call it, (laughs) um, is a lot better than hers. But I still, you know, 100,000 times a day, I ask, what language do we speak in this house? (laughs) And the answer is usually, well, ours, because, you know, my husband's Montenegrin, I'm Bosnian, so we don't call it necessarily Montenegrin or Bosnian. We just call it our language. Yeah.
0: And are they similar languages? Then they're like, do you go to Montenegro and speak Bosnian, people will understand you, or is it very different? Yes, absolutely.
2: Different? So okay. the actual official language is perfectly fine. You can understand each other, no problem, uh, no problem whatsoever.
0: And which language okay. is that?
2: So Montenegrin and and Bosnian, they're very similar. The two languages are extremely similar. Okay. The issues come up when you talk to people who come from a specific area of the country. So like my husband's area of Montenegro, they have their own dialect, almost. And so they use a lot of words that aren't necessarily the official words for things. So I remember when we first met, he would ask me for things. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then he would just use the official word and it would be fine. Um and then same thing in Bosnia, right? There are words that we use within my own area that are not necessarily common even in other parts of Bosnia and that I have to explain in the actual official gotcha. language.
0: But if you speak the, the, the language without the I guess the colloquialism, you it'll be you'll understand each other. Absolutely
2: right? no problem. Yeah. Very the nice. languages are essentially the same, just a different different accent more or less.
0: I see. And where did you and your husband meet?
2: We actually met in Chicago. So there was a Bosnian, I guess I would call it a bar, but it wasn't really a bar. It was like a restaurant with live music Okay. Um, that we both used to go to on Saturday nights. And he had seen me there. And so he asked some friends about me and they ended up introducing us. And we eventually ended up going out and finally ended up married eight years later. So
0: Nice. And he's from you said from Montenegro, moved to the United States as well. He's also an immigrant. so do do you worry about your children not having a strong connection to the homeland, or do you try and give them some connection to it what What are your thoughts with the generations moving forward farther away from the homeland?
2: I think it's really difficult to maintain that connection to the homeland, Uh, but my husband and I certainly try very hard. So my husband owns his own business. He does building maintenance and snow removal. And I worked in community pharmacies for many, many years and finally now work in academia, also pharmacy related. Since the year that our children were born, we have gone to. Montenegro every single year we take the children for three months out of the year. So the entire summer they spend in Montenegro. My husband will usually go for a month and a half to two, and then I'll try to come after he gets home, I'll go and stay for another month so that the children can be there as long as possible. I think there are two very important things that you need to do in order to, to maintain that connection. One is teaching your children the language. And then the other is actually bringing them back there as often as possible. Mm -hmm. So we made sure that our children spoke the language before we ever went back there. Uh, Ever since the children were born, the only language we speak in the home is ours. So Bosnian, Montenegrin, whatever. And again, I would present my children only with cartoons in Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, uh, Montenegrin, Mm -hmm. because that allowed them to learn that language even through interaction with the TV. When we take our children to Europe, then when we take them to Montenegro, when we take them to Bosnia, they are able to communicate with all of their cousins, with all of their aunts, with all of their uncles, Mm. with all of their grandparents. And I think that is truly what creates that connection, because I've seen it from a lot of our friends whose children don't speak Bosnian Montenegrin all that well and primarily speak English. I find that those children, in my experience, at least have a harder time making that connection to the homeland because... They don't feel understood, rightfully so, uh, when they go there and they're not able to communicate as well. So it's certainly a lot more difficult for them to establish that.
1: So you go to Montenegro. Do you ever go back to Bosnia? So um, when we go to Montenegro,
2: it, it really depends on the year. I do try to go back to Bosnia at least every few years. And honestly, there are times when I just feel like I have to go to Bosnia I remember one year we were planning our trip to Montenegro and I was telling my husband, I'm like, this year, I really want to go to Bosnia. I miss my family. I want to go, you know, I just, I miss home. So he says, okay, not a problem. Let's plan it. You know, we're going to plan it so that we're there together for at least a week and I can drive and we can take the kids and, you know, the kids can meet your family too. And that year was the year that Bosnia was affected by horrible flooding mm-hmm. Um it was really, really bad to the point where there were skin diseases happening in a lot of places. There there was water everywhere. Hmm. And we ended up not being able to go because of the flooding. And I remember being so devastated. And then I looked at my husband and I said, you know what? I know I can't go to Bosnia. And I know you don't want to come to Croatia with me, but I have to go. Like, I need to go just for four days. I need to go. I need to see my family because I have still a lot of family that lives there. I need to see my friends. I just have this desire to go someplace to be near someone that I know I mean, my parents live right next door to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Here in Chicago.
3: Yeah.
2: But still, my heart really needed to be someplace I knew for a little while. So I ended up going to Croatia. I flew to Croatia for four days that year. Um, So far, we have been to Bosnia twice since we were married while I was in school and before we got married, I used to go every year because my grandmother used to live there. So I used to go and stay with her for six weeks, every winter during my winter break, sort of help her out around the house. But we were actually gonna go last year, we were gonna go to Bosnia and we weren't able to because of COVID. So I'm really hoping that in a few months we're able to actually make the trip to Montenegro and then drive into Bosnia and and visit with family because I, I miss them. And I hope they miss me too. We'll, we'll find out
1: at the, at uh, the um, beginning of the conversation. I think you said Bosnia was the place where you truly have a home. And I'm wondering if you've found home in Chicago, or if Bosnia is still the place that feels like home to you?
2: Whew, that's a rough one. <laughs> so I, I do have, I do have a home in Chicago, I have my kids, I have my husband, my family's here, but I feel like Bosnia will always be that place that I miss.
0: It's it's amazing how strong that connection is to the land that you were born in, even you left it at nine under Good. terrible circumstances. But you know, when you think about it, you were probably three or four till you realize that, Hey, I live in this place. So it's five years of your life, but it has such a huge impact on you. I mean, you're getting emotional just talking about it or thinking about it. And I, and I think about it from my own personal experience, not having gone through such circumstances as you have, but the tug at the country that I was born in, even though that country didn't, you know, accept me as a citizen, I was a resident of it until I graduated high school. But it's just, I don't know. It's like a that homing device that's always calling you. Like, you know, you need to go back to recharge. And it's amazing. I have friends from middle school that we're on WhatsApp together. We're talking about 30 years that we haven't really seen each other more than once or twice. And I feel like I still hold them in my heart as brothers, you know, that I can call them, you know, tomorrow and say, hey, I need you. And they'll be right there. And it's just, I think that, sense of root doesn't ever go away no matter how much of a home you establish somewhere else.
2: Yeah. And again, I do have, you know, Chicago is where I've sort of become the person that I am today in in a way, right? In mm-hmm. terms of profession, family, all of that Chicago is is my home. But Bosnia, like you said, it is this place that will always have my heart even though i don't have many friends there anymore you know i was too young to to have formed those connections that i was able to form with friends in croatia uh, i was certainly too young to make those connections back in bosnia but it's still the place where i lived with my family mm-hmm. so yeah.
0: yeah it's um i mean it, for, for from the outside looking in people might Misunderstand that feeling. That why are you being ungrateful for the home you have here? And it's not that I'm grateful for the years that I've spent. The you know I met my wife here. We, we, you know we gave birth to our kids here. We made a lot of friends and professionally. And and doing what I'm doing right now is because I'm in the United States. And I and I love that. And I'm grateful for it. But there's always that special spot in one's heart for the land in which they were born in. Uh, that I don't think really ever goes away so
2: and honestly the friends that you make early on in life to me are typically the ones that you can rely on the most like those are the people that have been with you through thick and thin Mm -hmm. so my friend that I mentioned earlier who had picked up my diplomas and shipped them to me right even though there was no viber there was no whatsapp there was None of none of the technology that we have available today, we, we've kept in touch for over 20 years. And she actually came to visit in 2016, I believe. She came, or 2018 maybe. She came and visited and stayed with us for um, wow. two weeks here in, in Chicago. And she loved it. And you know, every time I go to Croatia, she's the first person I call. And we spend a lot of time together. We spend a lot of time talking over the phone. Um, so those are the people that I feel like you are the, meet that definition of a true friend, Mm -hmm. right? Um, you always see those cheesy things on Facebook that say the true friend is one where you just pick up the conversation where you last left off, even, (laughs) even though you haven't spoken to them in 20 years. 20 years.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's what those people are like to me. We can literally pick up any conversation from 20, 25 years ago and just continue it as if we never stopped talking. Yeah. Oh, and for me, Bosnia was the last place where my family was together.
3: Hmm.
2: So, in, in a way, all of us living in the same geographical area. Now, after the war, I have family living. I have aunt and uncle in Germany. I have cousins living out in Australia. I have um, cousins all over the United States. So... I have cousins in Croatia, different parts of Croatia, cousins in different parts of Bosnia. So no one really, like when I go home now, I see the people that are there, but I also see the ones that are not. Mm -hmm. That's tough.
1: You You think about the cost of war and you think about human casualties and losing people, but you don't think about how scattered it can make families and friends in the aftermath. So it's a lot. Yeah.
0: Yeah, as a a Palestinian, a lot of people tell me, like, when we talk about it, I say, I I didn't live the war. My father lived the war. Actually, pretty similar to your story, where um, his homeland was invaded. He was eight or nine. God rest his soul now. But uh, I didn't live the war, but I live its consequences. And the consequences is the diaspora. We're, We're spread out all over the world you know and uh, even within my own immediate family i have a brother in the czech republic my oldest sister is still back in qatar my two brothers in um, or my brother and my sister in a different state and it's the consequence of war that we don't take into account a whole lot of times the the toll that it takes on people and their relationships
2: what what that i have cousins that i haven't seen and in- 28 years others that i haven't seen in 15 years you know so it that to me is the hardest part
0: mm-hmm. well i'm sure the love that you have for them and the love that they have for you transcends any boundaries and any time limits and that's what we that's what we live off that's what we live on
2: honestly it has sort of taken me a while to surround myself with people that i truly feel comfortable with and one of the places where I feel most comfortable these days is actually my workplace, which is kind of interesting Um, and unusual. You know, I used to work in community pharmacy, so that's retail life for you. People come in in all sorts of moods and um, you deal with, with all sorts of personalities and, and it's very different compared to what I'm doing now in academia. Uh, But one of the places where I really, truly feel comfortable with is Roosevelt. I feel like it's a place where I'm accepted. Roosevelt was founded on this premise of equality and justice for all. And honestly, it's something that everyone at Roosevelt truly lives as a part of their daily life. And and I think it's kind of amazing that, you know, I have colleagues from all walks of life. Um, We have a very diverse faculty. We have a very diverse student body. But one of the things that I truly love and that really makes me happy about going into work every day is that people will disagree with me because of an opinion. They'll disagree with me because or they might they might not enjoy an interaction with me because we're discussing something that is difficult. They might not enjoy an interaction with me that because of things that we're working on and there's a lot of work to be done, but they've never... I've never felt like they don't enjoy the interaction with me solely because of who I am, meaning solely because of being a refugee, solely because of being, which I still do label myself as, by the way, 25 Mm. years later or 28 years later, I still call myself a refugee because I've never been able to go back home. So it's kind of amazing that, you know, you can find people that just accept you for you, for who you are and, and be happy by being with that group of people. And I I truly am grateful that I was able to find a workplace that values me for who I am and and doesn't look at what I am in a way.
0: So at the end of the episode, we like to turn the mic over to you and uh, whatever you'd like to share to our listeners out there, the floor is yours.
2: The one thing that I will share and that I think is really important for all of us to consider as we meet new people is... Give people a chance. One of the things my parents taught me very early on is, again, there are good people and bad people everywhere you go, and they don't necessarily belong to one nation, to one religion, to one skin color, and that's something that I have always been guided by in life. Um, Evaluate people based on who they are, not what they are, right? Not based on that label Mm. that they have on their forehead the moment you look at them but give everyone a chance. Take a moment to really get to know the people before you determine whether they're good or or bad because you might miss out on, on meeting some really amazing people if you just judge them by looking at them or by thinking about what label they belong to.
1: The Ion Immigrant is a production of WBOI Studios in Fort Wayne and was created and hosted by Ahmed Abdelmajid. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and please leave a review. To learn more about this season's guests, visit Ionimmigrant.com or find us on Facebook and join the conversation. Today's episode was edited by Alex Costanzo. This is co-producer Katie Anderson signing off until next time. Thanks for listening from WBOI, Fort Wayne.